0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. Kate, you've described to Sherry and I that sometimes you feel like you're being too secretive when it comes to communicating with your husband sometimes too honest, and that you don't like either. You've, you've kind of indicated that you evaluate everything you say from a strategic standpoint. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's that's fascinating, and I think that would be a great introduction to this conversation to have you kind of explain what you mean by that.
2: Okay. Uh, my husband and I have different reactions when emotions run high. So over the course of about a decade together, I definitely learned how to anticipate things that could be problematic and how to evaluate how different things that I might say that could be Maybe in the early days, I might have not thought about saying, but then after I learned more about how reactions could play out, I learned to be more thoughtful to say, "Okay, wait, I mean this, but how might this be interpreted? How might this be reacted to? And what uh, what approach might be more successful than just?" letting whatever comes to mind come out of my mouth immediately.
0: That's mm. great. I, I think that word strategic is particularly fascinating. Sherry, aren't you excited that we've got Kate here talking to us today? I am very excited. And the, the strategy that goes into formulating words and deciding how to explain things or how to ask a question and the timing too, Right. Is this a good time? Should I wait for a different time?
1: You have experience
0: with that too, don't you, Sherry? Yes. You were often a
1: very good um, person to correct me if I said something inappropriately. I was, you would say, I was this willing is, to jump this is how you? you should do this. And because I didn't really give it much thought, even though there would be time and time again, I didn't come to you. There's so much work behind my thoughts, which I feel like Kate's describing. There's a lot of work um, involved, and um, I remember thinking about timing and and you know a little bit about how I say something, but it didn't matter how I said it. I think at the end of your drinking career, I would just be like, "He's going to correct me and tell me that it's wrong, anyhow." So no matter what you, I'm just going to say it the way I would say it because that's me, and I'm going to follow me. But I remember those days of thinking how good of a mood is this person in and is this the right time if i bring it up is it going to get thrown back in my face later on depending on how many beers in and it might be brought in you know
0: when when formulating your strategy kate i I love that you you describe that as sometimes you felt like you were being too secretive sometimes too honest but you didn't like either one of those two how you felt about yourself either either way that goes into the strategy too. How much am I going to reveal? Right? Um, am I going to hold stuff back? Are we on a need to know basis, or do I let it all flow? And and you kind of tried it all different ways to see how it would work, right?
2: Yeah, and absolutely. Even in hearing you say this, I'm going, "Wow." There were times where I was thoughtful and strategic, and there were other times where, yeah, I just did do probably all the wrong things. But in that moment, I was tired, distracted, not, you know, so certainly I'm not trying to say that I achieved a hundred percent thoughtfulness at all times. I don't think that that would even be close to true.
0: Well, what's really sad about this when we're talking about a marriage relationship, this bond between two people that's supposed to be sacred and loving and open and all of these wonderful words. I mean, that's what we dream about anyway, right? The idea that you would have to strategize at all yeah. is what's, what's really sad about it. And we see it in case after case, and it's certainly what what we experienced, but this is the place where you should be able to just let it all hang out and not have to think it all through. But and just the fact did, that you did, it's heartbreaking.
1: And if you did fumble your words and you offend, there can always be an apology and a, and a grace from, you know, you give an apology, grace from the partner that you offended
0: hopefully enough grace you, you don't know, even need an apology yeah
1: exactly and they would understand emotions run high or whatever but in a alcoholic relationship that is not the case
0: thank you for letting us just jump right into that subtopic kate because I, I think it's a really important one and it's something that we have so much in common the reason we wanted to have you on and do this podcast episode with us is because there are parts of your story that are not, that we do not have in common. Your story is a little bit different than ours. And we were hoping to find someone that was, um, has as much expertise and experience in this area that we're going to talk about as you do. And so we're just super grateful for you because what you've experienced is not unique. It's not rare, not by a long shot. It's just a little different than what Sherry and I have experienced. So it's not, an area that we can talk about without the aid of someone who's who's been through it so let's bring our audience up to speed about what you have experienced can we talk a little bit about what it was like um let's go back before you even knew that your husband was drinking you you guys had kind of different sleeping patterns it was just a, a different cycle going on in the house you versus your husband can you talk a little bit about what that was like
2: um Sure. Well, for various reasons, I've always been the morning shift. So I've had the nine to six or whatever job. And, uh, after, um, after we became parents, it just naturally made sense that I was the one who was more present in the morning. And then I quickly went back to work. So again, I was always on that morning schedule and, um, my husband had different jobs where he was working later shifts, had other activities that he took part in that were you know not morning activities and so he always was on a different um, just just on a different schedule than me And that was established just early on and continued with you know minimal variation.
0: So so he, he would, you know, you would sleep during the night, the, the kind of, um, like you said, you had a nine to six, the, the life that you would expect there, but he would be up for much of the night and then work during the day. So you guys were kind of ships passing in the night for a good period of this, that, that helped to hide the fact that he was drinking at all, right? You spent a long period of time, not even realizing that alcohol was part of your, your, your scene, your picture, correct?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I certainly didn't think that there was never a drink happening, but it was never in front of me or extremely rarely in front of me. So I didn't have, uh, that was sort of an unspoken sort of thing that, you know, later it came out that he assumed that I must have known and there had been some conversations about it, but at the same time, it was very different than when I hear some others speak about, you know, witnessing active drinking or having multiple conversations and or arguments about active drinking. None of that was part of our story.
0: So when you're sleeping at different times of the day, so when you're up, for instance, during the day, the normal waking hours, you're kind of tiptoeing around and trying not to wake him up. But if I understand the story correctly, It's, it's more than that. You were, you were afraid of what the reaction would be that you would get if you made too much noise or woke him up. So you're kind of on eggshells there. Is that, is that correct?
2: Uh, well it was, yes, it was established that he wasn't a morning person that he was, you know, not in a good mood when he woke up and in, in, in times and it was even expressed in a way in which he would try to be like, Hey, you know, if I say something, uh, it's not so nice, you know. It's because I'm just I'm not a morning person, and and I was like, yeah, I understand that. And um, at the same time, depending on what was going on, you know, certainly in the pre-pandemic time, you know, maybe I was waking up, getting out the door, and that was it. You know, it was a short time, or maybe it was a rainy weekend, and I was at home entertaining a kid. And also in a, a small space, trying to not, you know, make noise. And I think it's uh, there's there's just a lot of uncertainty because maybe maybe making noise would be disturbing, and a and a door would be slammed or some other expression to make it clear that that the the noise that was made was disturbing to his rest was was made. Um, you know, and certainly when he was working late night hours. I certainly felt bad about that. Like, okay, wow. You know, like I should be letting you sleep to the extent that I can, but there are other times when you just really can't help yourself. And there's, you know, like kid is having fun doing something and you're making a bunch of noise and it it just happens.
0: So that fear or caution. Well, first of all, I can share the the piece about living with someone who's not a morning person. (laughs) I am very... I'm very familiar <laughs> about sometimes in the morning.
1: I thought you were going to say that kids are just not quiet, but well, you're
0: talking okay. Kids are not yeah, quiet. That's true. Quiet. But but no, I can I can resonate with that. But I mean, so work is work and life is life and you've got to find a way to make it work. And so the fact that he's working a different shift than you, I mean, that's a thing that a lot of people experience. But that tiptoeing around and being worried about the reaction. Can you talk a little bit about how that made you feel? How did, how did that make you feel being on a different schedule? This is your husband. You're isolated because the timing is different. And then you're further isolated because you're trying real hard not to not to make any noise. Was it a lonely feeling?
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's actually, it's kind of a little hard to talk about because I, I'm like, I'm getting all choked up, just kind of trying to find the words. But Um, I mean, I think it ended up being a really uh, complicated mix because certainly if someone's coming home from work at midnight and someone else is gonna be getting up at six, there's there's an unavoidable aspect of that, which is just, you know, everyone's doing what they have to do to keep the family going and, you know, we're all working together for a common goal. And our child is our absolute biggest priority, both of us. And so anything that we have to do to make sure that we have and can provide for him, we will do. At the same time, in my particular experience, when the hours of difference sort of stretched out in a greater way, because, you know, and And I actually ended up at one point in time in a crazy job where I was going in and it was everything but nine to six. I was going in at nine. I was still coming home at 11 o'clock at night. So I very much understood that you can't come home and shut it off and be like, okay, hey, I got home at 11. I'm going to go to bed at 11.05. It doesn't work that way. And I couldn't do it. He certainly couldn't do it. I had a better shot of doing it if I'd worked from nine to 11 than certainly he did working a, a much more sane job. But he too was tired. But I got it. But I think the thing to the loneliness point that was hard was, you know, if you, if you get home at midnight and you go to sleep at two or you go to sleep at at three, it's one thing. When it was, you know, sometimes happening that he'd be going to sleep at at five or six or just barely going to sleep as I was waking up, it, it did seem a little a little bit excessive that there was um, a priority a prioritizing happening and. Since I didn't have the full scope of the picture of what was going on, it just seemed that um, his alone time was something that was his priority, and I didn't have the context for understanding exactly what was going into that.
0: And when you say, when you talk about that context, you knew that there were some drinks here and there, but you didn't know the, the degree to which alcohol had taken kind of hold yet.
2: Yeah. You know, and again, it's it's tricky because with hindsight, I just, I don't want to just kick myself for not putting all mm. the pieces together. And um, I think I had some preconceived notions that, I mean, the most obvious one is that I thought that if it was c- controllable to the point that I literally never saw him drink, that clearly, it couldn't be a problem. And obviously I was wrong, but that was something that, you know, I kind of held on to and in the times that i did bring it up it was it was it was downplayed it was i've got it under control or um, you know oddly there were certain times and certain sets of circumstances in which he would completely stop drinking for a stretch of time and again i would i would think to look at that and go okay so clearly it's not a problem so
0: well if if there's one thing that all of us alcoholics have in common, it's a a good skill in downplaying and you know shifting the focal point and making our loved ones feel like uh you know clearly it it can't be as bad as i as i was wondering if it was because this person's making it clear that they aren't drinking that much and that they've got it under control and you know it's all smoke and mirror I can stop whenever I want and but one of the things that I, I know that that I did was to hide the empties. And I think that was part of your story, too. You were in a situation where your husband could get rid of the empties before you woke up when he would drink what, during your sleeping hours, correct?
2: Exactly. We were in an apartment with a shared recycling area. So there was not. Yeah, there was no evidence.
0: That's great. As I, mean, it were. I, know, I know I would have to take my empties and to go to other people's recycling bins outside a shared recycling area. That's, that's even better from the, from the mind of a drinker. That's, that's brilliant. I love it. Um, when, when we talk about, um, you know, walking on eggshells and being careful, it wasn't just about waking him up either. You've shared with us that there were times when he would express things that he wasn't, completely happy about in the relationship um point out things that he would hope to have change and then you would have to react to that um I think you, you you've told us that sometimes you would react with positivity sometimes you would jump in and you know if, if there was an area of the house that he wanted that he, he felt was uh, wasn't kept you know he you'd jump in and and declutter and clean as as much as you can and just have a variety of these kind of um, you know, high-intensity reactions to the, the things that he was bringing up, D- did that make you feel on edge all the time? Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Um, the best way that I'm, I mean, I'm trying to still piece it all together right sure. now for myself, but the, the things that I'm, I'm starting to put together is that um, I had this sense that there was, a way in which I wasn't measuring up. That was my personal mm. experience. And of course, with context, it was much more complex than that, but that was just my general feeling. And so I had a sort of sense of being on edge just from that and my own baggage from my own past prior to the relationship, as we all have that. And so then I could perhaps take comments that he made and overly internalize them and kind of connect dots that didn't need to be connected. Like uh, we were living in a small apartment and often things would knock over and fall when you tried to get something out of an overfilled cabinet. And I am with, you know, with hindsight now that I say it, it sounds ridiculous to say that if I could somehow put the cabinet in order and magically made it so that nothing had fallen, we wouldn't have suddenly started spending more time together because this had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on. And it, I don't know how I could have possibly been putting these two things together in my head, but somehow in my head, if I could accomplish something and maybe it was that cabinet and I would take that cabinet apart and try to put it together, or maybe it was just, A bookcase had nothing to do with the cabinet whatsoever, but it was something that I could somehow be like, "Oh, I'm doing a thing," or maybe it would be like a craft project with my child to be like, "Oh, hey, look at this way in which I'm doing something productive." And don't you wish you could wake up and be part of that? Lots of different sort of bargains that he was in no way privy to, and you know couldn't in any way be held accountable for not responding in the way that I had sort of hoped. But I was. I think just trying to somehow like give myself a project or something that I could tackle and sort of a, a checkbox. Like, oh, hey, look, I did this. And so often those those sort of jobs would sort of come up for me.
0: Well, those those feelings or emotions, that idea that by putting this cabinet together, he'd want to spend more time together and things would be better you're in one of the places in the world where that's a safe thing to say that a ton of people are going to resonate with that. I mean, you you almost kind of were apologizing for it and saying, I can't believe I thought this way. The the people that listen to this podcast, the the hosts sitting next to me, these are people that can completely understand that sentiment. There's nothing crazy about it. I mean, Sherry, you, Oh my gosh. So when I get stressed or I feel bad, I eat, I eat like a horse. Sherry does the opposite. She doesn't eat anything when she's upset and she cleans or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I was just thinking as, as Kate was saying this, how she didn't feel like she was measuring up and you're kind of living this separate life. You hope that you would gain a little bit of attention that he would notice that the bookshelf was organized or look at this adorable craft that they did today while I was, you know, this evening while I was at work, you know, so to be fair, he would, it was, yeah. So you wanted (laughs) to like invite him in, into the life that you had going on while he was at his job or then having his alone time. So I can see how that you would want to, you know, have those things, those little jobs and chores to, you know, make your home a home and like have him recognize that because you are kind of at this separate, Life stage just because of the jobs. You know, yeah, like I, absolutely.
2: And, you know, we both would. I mean, he would thank me for doing things and then he'd be like, oh, hey, I vacuumed everything today. I'd be like, wow, thank you for doing that. So it certainly isn't that we weren't mutually appreciative of what we were both contributing. Like I said, I just somehow was thinking I'd, I'd like check off enough box boxes, win enough gold stars, or, you know, like there was some sort of, you know, weird elementary school accomplishment that I thought I was gonna like unlock or something. That that's the that was the kind of
0: step too far. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm glad that you were open and honest and vulnerable enough to share with us that you had that feeling of not measuring up, and that by trying to do these things, you were in in essence trying to measure up. Because I just I know that's a feeling that happens when you're the loved one of an alcoholic. When when there's tension, when there's just unspoken, un, misunderstood tension that's filling the relationship, this idea that there's something that you can do to fix it is overwhelming. And um, so I'm I'm glad that you you shared that with us. And and I know I know we've got listeners that are going to listen to this and be screaming. There's nothing you could have been doing, Kate. You know you were doing great. Um, it's not on you. And so I just want to, on behalf of all those people share that. I know you've heard that before, but, um, I don't think you can hear it too often.
1: Mm,
0: That's true. Especially, especially in one of these situations where you didn't know what was going on, um, which are, it's just far too common. I mean, I lied about how much I drank. Um, I snuck drinks for sure. I tried to make it so Sherry couldn't count, but I, I never thought I could get away with just bold face. You know, my wife, not knowing that I was drinking, and so while, well, like you said, your husband, he didn't hide the fact that he was drinking, but because he drank it in different hours than when you were awake, he was able to be much more clandestine. And I think that's, um, that just, it, it puts the, this feeling of potentially, am I crazy? Am I making this up? What's going wrong? Um, so such a weight on your shoulders that, uh, I can't even imagine. So the, the piece of it, that, that's different in your experience, Kate, than ours, it's, you know, it's not so much the hours that the, the work hours and the, the different sleeping schedules. I mean, that's, that's a little bit, but, but the thing that we really want to talk about is the silent treatment. When you and your husband would have discussions that wouldn't go particularly well, he, he would just shut you out and be quiet and um not talk for a long periods of time what what would bring on uh, the silent treatment what, what what would what would start it going
2: um well most often just like you said there would be a disagreement and we have different backgrounds in terms of you know what one learns in family growing up and you know whatever you bring into a relationship and it became apparent early in our relationship that he would reach a point where physically removing himself from the room without an explanation or sometimes with a parting shot would be like he would get that to that point and then for a period of time afterwards he would not talk to me other than the bare minimum and would have a hard time meeting my eyes and was clearly overwhelmed by whatever had happened to get to that point. Um, The amount of time that this could go on, you know, I realized in sort of thinking about it recently that for me, every, every moment of that felt probably 10 times longer than it actually was. So... I think probably most often it was a few days. There were definitely times where it was less than that, and there were times when it was more than that. But, um, but the general way that it would play out would just be, you know, um, the, the minimal amount of communication to keep things going, and to not have any. Uh, you know, anyone else maybe notice what was going on if there were others around. And um, you know, when our when our child was was older and enough to be aware of this, you know, making sure that it seemed as normal as possible for him. But I knew that things had gotten to that point. There was, on occasion, much less often, times when this would happen when it was not after an argument or something. That was a, a, a disagreement, and I would just find myself trying to actually figure it out. Being like, "Wait is is he is he doing it? Is that what's going on right now, or am I am I just being overly sensitive? And in fact, he's just distracted by something." And but that was much less frequent.
0: Wow, well, I can't even imagine what that was like. You're already dealing with an addiction that you aren't aware of. You aren't aware of the degree to which he's drinking. And so it's, it's, you know, causing tension and occasionally you're arguing and it's going into the, this silent treatment, but sometimes it would come on and you wouldn't even know why. I mean, we talk a lot in our echoes of recovery group and, and with, with just anybody in the recovery community about the gaslighting that takes place in an alcoholic relationship. And I'm not by any means saying that your husband was doing this on purpose, but the result of the um, this not talking to you and and distancing himself, it, it it has to make you just feel like a crazy person. Is am I going too far with that?
2: I would you know, for the most part, I think that um, it wasn't so much crazy. I'm going to jump. In. Um, I think the thing that was unfortunate is that my specific insecurities definitely were not a good uh, mix with this particular way of being. And it's entirely possible that there could have been a different interaction and a different way of things playing out with someone else that would have gone differently. Um, I've got some insecurity things going on and I could very quickly turn it into this again sort of like what I was saying before about the the cleaning or what have you but turn it into this okay what do I do to fix this what do I do to fix this and my brain would start just going a mile a minute of how do I get this to stop um, kind of in that way that if you're um, in pain that that pain can sort of obliterate other thoughts about other things and it sort of just becomes that one thing that you can focus on is you know, um, not to compare it to a migraine, but like, it's like, oh my gosh, how do I make this, this, my head feeling like this stop becomes the only thing you can think about. The silent treatment for me, my experience was sort of like that. Like, how can I do a thing that will fix this? How can I make this better? How can I make this feeling go away? And that would be like all I could think about.
0: Yeah. Oh man. So, so tough. Um, you, you talk about your insecurities I, I can't help but but say, you know, it, you, you're. Ext- I think you're an extremely respectful person. You're being extremely respectful the way you're telling the story. And I, I know Sherry and I really, really appreciate that. But it, it feels like you're carrying some of the burden for this and some of the blame for this. And you're talking about, you know, in, insecurities. Um, it's like gas gets poured on them and then the the match gets thrown when you're in an alcoholic relationship. And so whatever you carry in just gets worse and worse and worse. And especially when you're dealing with the silent treatment is as, as you're describing, it just, it leaves your head spinning and you're wondering what can I do better? What have I done wrong? Um, but I, I, I've got to tell you, I, I just don't feel like your insecurity, your insecurities are in any way to blame for any of this. Sherry, what, what's your, What are your thoughts? I mean, you, you had your share of insecurities, right? And it it just got worse as you had to deal with my alcoholic behavior. Is that fair to say? I
1: think that's very fair to say. I, I would often doubt myself or think, gosh, I must not be smart enough for him to listen to my opinion or respect my opinion. I, and so I, I let that really um, spin around in my head quite often for many years, just feeling like, well, I must not, you know, the lack of, you know, a, a degree, a master's degree or something must make me less than, and I can't, you know, give, uh, give a valid opinion. so I think that because of the disconnect that alcohol was separating us in, in our marriage, I think that that just made it even worse too. thinking, well. He would rather enjoy his own company and his own alcohol, you know, without me. I mean, oftentimes you would invite me to come watch a movie with you and you would drink. So it wasn't like you. Do you, you, know, do you want to sit next to me while just, I pass out? This exactly, would be fun. Watch me drink and I pass out. But I think that I got to the point where I was like, well, you would prefer your own company. And so we were disconnected there, which that's what alcohol puts between us couple
0: and that kind of fuel that insecurity
1: then that totally fueled that insecurity of like i am not good enough company for him he has to drink to be at home with me and that just that just led to a, a lot of insecurities and years of that
0: yeah so hard so hard so kate tell us it, how, how would the silence be broken uh, you said sometimes it would be days, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, but how? How? What? What were the the things that would, you know, bring you out of that period and and end the silence silent treatment?
2: Um, usually, I would apologize, um, try just you know in some way express like. know please stop you know please start engaging with me again like please let's you know let's talk about this thing that had come up or um you know just some you know some way to kind of start the conversation again and and to uh get things going um there were you know Often I'd get to the point where I would, I would apologize, and I would realize that I'd be apologizing for something that a few days earlier I had thought I absolutely was right, but then I was like, not, it's not worth this. So I'm I'm apologizing for it. And there were times where he would apologize to me, and that would that would end it. Um,
1: uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. And- but I just feel like in our relationship, I apologize for things that I knew that I shouldn't have to apologize for just to get things kind of set back to normal, quote unquote, like, and I found myself doing that a lot, you know, or apologizing for like so many things that didn't even happen during the incident, just to kind of set you straight, you know, or us straight and make you forgive me, even though in hindsight, It was the alcohol.
0: Oh, and and often I feel like those were the times when you were the most insecure. You just didn't have the self-confidence to to say, no, that's not what happened, you asshole. This is Mm -hmm. this is the reality. Mm -hmm. And stand by it. Um, you know, I I wasn't big on the silent treatment because as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I like the sound of my own voice way too much. (laughs) But Um, but I definitely made you feel bad and made you feel bad and kept pointing and kept pushing and kept Mm -hmm. blaming you to the point where Kate, when you first shared this part of the story with us, it, it impacted me in a way that honestly, most of the time when I hear this, these, these stories, it doesn't choke me up emotionally. Maybe that is a bad sign. Maybe I'm cold hearted, but I've just heard it so many times. But when you talked about this part when you would apologize and ask for forgiveness, even about something that you had hours or days ago, been hundred percent certain you had done nothing wrong. It was, it was like a flashback for me back to our relationship. When, when I would just, I mean, I would drive home the point of what I thought Sherry had done wrong until she was at her breaking point And she would, you know, I mean, do you just feel like you were backed against the wall and, Oh, yeah. In order to bring peace back to the household, you had to apologize. Yeah. Um, Definitely feel backed into the wall.
1: And I felt like there were just lots of threats. And so under duress, I just, you know, I copped to everything. I said, oh, it's all my fault. You know, I I felt like there was no other way out because you were so good at arguing. Um, Again, we never had the silent treatment that um, you were so good at arguing and so good at like manipulating the situation. I wouldn't say play victim, but you just had, I mean, you're very good at convincing yourself because you were protecting something. You were protecting your alcohol. Yeah. So you had it a lot your going fault. for you. And I, all I needed to do, all I was trying to do was just have, you know, a happy household, a normal household. So I don't feel like I had, I mean, yeah, I had the kids that I wanted to protect, but I wasn't trying to hold on to too many things like you were trying to hold on to.
0: So you had a lot more to defend. Yeah. Cause it either had to be your fault or I had to quit drinking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Those in were the only in yeah, my, in my were. mind, those are the only two options. So I wasn't even close to interested in quitting drinking. So it had to be your fault. That's the way it worked in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so in our case, Kate, I was very manipulative. I think that was a great word that you just used, Sherry. It sounds like in your situation with the silent treatment, your husband—this was his his defense mechanism or his reaction. You know, obviously, I, I can't put myself in his position, but I really, I honestly, truly believe he wasn't doing this to be vicious or vindictive or anything like that. This was just the way he reacted. But the pain that it caused you. Um, is just unbearable until you reach the point where you'll do whatever it takes to make it end, right?
2: Absolutely. And, and thank you for bringing that up. In, um, you know, in kind of, again, trying to go back over all of this, uh, I definitely keep coming back to, um, he was doing this because he didn't want to say something that was hurtful. And that's not a bad place. I, I mean, it, it, was, it was a well-intentioned starting point that just came together in, in not the greatest way. Um, in fact, totally sort of connecting two pieces of what we've talked about, um, You know, it was expressed in uh, a, one of the meetings about how he clearly cared so much about my opinion that he took all of these steps to keep drinking and the extent of the drinking hidden from me and it's in a way I sort of am correlating that revelation with this where it was not necessarily that he was sitting here going oh I know how I'm going to control her not that at all it was almost the opposite it was oh wow I don't want to mess things up by losing control of what I'm saying and his way of I guess in a way, his way of being strategic, going back to what you were saying about me at the beginning of this conversation, being strategic, his way of being strategic was, I'm gonna remove myself from this situation and kind of put myself in timeout until I can control myself more. Um, mm. And, you know, we would have some conversations about it in which I would say, you know, can't you just tell me that? Can't you just say, hey, I need, I need to step out of this conversation right now. This is too much for me or, hey, I, I, I need to, you know, I'll get back to you when I'm ready to talk about this some more, something like that. And which ultimately he did manage to start doing that after we sort of got, had a breakthrough in which he started understanding exactly what you said, what the experience was for me, even though it was not his intention.
0: Wow. So much pain being endured by both of you and uh, can't even, it's so hard. So, uh, you know, once the, these periods of silence started to be semi-regular, um, d- did that go to the top of your list of things to try to avoid? You talked earlier about, you know, the things that you were trying to do because you felt like maybe you weren't enough and if you could be more, then, then that would fix things. Did this get added to the list? Now I've got to try to keep one of these silent treatment sessions from coming on. Did that pressure, you know, weigh on you?
2: Uh Yes, the, the silent treatment never became something that happened a lot. I was, um, um, and again, I think this is interesting because it brings up the differences between his experience of this, in which he was on the rare occasion that his emotions were getting overwhelming for him becoming silent was his experience of it. And at the same time, my experience of it was having it in my awareness that if a confrontation got to, if a disagreement, if a discussion, if whatever it was got to that point, that that was within the scope of things that could possibly come up. So I certainly wasn't hundred percent of the time going, oh no, what if I, you know, make a noise and drop a book and that's going to cause a problem. It wasn't like that, but there was always, not always, there was, Uh, you know, 50, 60% of the time awareness that, Oh, am I, am I going into that danger zone? Is this going to come up? And, um, and kind of, uh, again, just like, is it my responsibility to avoid that danger zone? Is that like part of like the contract that we have together for this relationship that I try to avoid that danger zone so that we can have more productive conversations and a, and a, a more harmonious life and all of all of that good stuff. Um, it was also sort of maybe something where I wasn't immediately aware of how much this was making an impact on how I presented myself and how I would express my feelings. And it took some hindsight to go, oh, wow, that, that really was something that I knew could be a could be a consequence of a certain co- course of action, and how do I avoid this consequence?
0: Do you, do you mean by that your your concern for, um, you know, this strategic part of it, trying to make sure that you didn't say the wrong thing, that was impacting how you were presenting yourself? Like you were coming across overly cautious? Am I understanding that right? Oh,
2: uh, sorry. More like I would try to be careful not to come across as overly negative okay, or overly critical because... Or if we've had a disagreement and we started disagreeing about something, maybe I would back off a little bit more, a little more quickly, and instead of having a little more of a conversation in that uncomfortable zone of not being aligned. We agreed on a lot of things. So sometimes sure. when we would have a conversation about something we didn't agree on, it wasn't necessarily common. And then how quickly that could get into a, a problem would be,
0: you know. So like you said, it wasn't, it wasn't all the time, but when you you had concerns about how's this communication going, I mean, your mind must've been going a million miles an hour swirling, choose the right word, say the right thing. Do I want to, do I want to give in early? Do I want to stand my ground? How do I want to present myself?
1: Like back in, throw in a compliment. That just seems like so much work. And and then I'm just going to throw it out there. You had no idea that the alcohol was present in his life on a regular basis and that lack of maturity that you know happens in the alcoholic and that that lack of like emotional I guess emotional maturity Mm -hmm. of handling situations that make you uncomfortable because then it was during the hours in which he would see you and he wasn't drinking where he probably also wanted to run the alcohol I mean I'm not trying to like necessarily paint a picture of your husband but just a picture of what an alcoholic might be thinking too yeah does that make sense Matt?
0: oh yeah yeah i mean wants to run
1: and numb the pain but and and doesn't have that uh, fortitude to carry on with a conversation in a respectful manner when there is you know conflict
0: well and there's there's that guilt and that shame that i carried around during my sober hours for the fact that i did have this affliction and that I did, it's you know, know deep, deep down that I had a problem, even if I wasn't willing to admit it on the outside or on a conscious level. Yeah. So there's lots of things that made communicating with me really difficult
1: when, yeah, even, when you weren't, you know, it.
0: even when I was sober. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So how did it come to a head, the drinking Kate, how did you find out that alcohol was a big problem?
2: Well, for a number of reasons, um, We got to a point where the arguing was becoming more uh, um, more constant. Um, There was a lot of, uh, a lot of the external factors of his work schedule went away during the pandemic. So that made certain things just really seem Again, without the context of the importance of drinking, because I'm not going to say that I didn't. Again, not that I didn't realize there was drinking, but I didn't have the scope of the importance or the grip that it had. So it really just seemed like this time, you know, when he was not working and we were able to spend much more time together, that that didn't um, materialize. And in fact, we started seeing each other less than ever, hmm. and uh, that made my, the insecurities, certainly I was like, wow, I'm just the real bottle at the bottom of the barrel. If this is, uh, if this is, uh, there's no external factor, there's no work schedule, there's no reason why we couldn't be spending more time together. And yet we were not. And then there were other arguments going on about different things that were getting more, uh, heated and, I actually got to the point where I didn't feel like there was enough of us actually getting along or, or liking each other for the marriage to continue. And then after I got to that point was when the alcoholism started being discussed.
0: So did, did you recognize right away that this was a situation where not only would your husband need help to find sobriety, from the alcoholism, but you also deserved help and support or, or did you spend time kind of swirling on your own uh, before you reached out?
2: We kind of did a whole bunch of stuff and it was, everything was sort of happening all, maybe all at the same time in some regards, but at the same time, then maybe backwards in other regards. So I started off with just finding that I was just, incredibly depressed, which probably, you know, again, this is 2020, like, you know, August of 2020, I was not the only depressed person out there. You weren't alone. Nor was my husband, like lots of depressed people out there. So, um, by, so after a few months of that, I um, started individual therapy for myself with a therapist I already had history with, although I hadn't spoken to her in 10 years, but I was at least able to pick up with someone who knew me to some regard. And I was able to kind of jump into the current situation a little faster. Um, When my husband identified that he needed to stop drinking, he then went and sort of threw himself very heavily into finding what he needed there. So he, started attending a lot of meetings. He, and I don't remember the exact timeline, but at some point started individual therapy. Um, and I had a lot of like conflicting thoughts about the, how the drinking impacted everything because my experience of so many things didn't have that as part of it, that I was going, but wait, this, this, and this happened. And then now I have to look at it again with, oh, how was, how was drinking impacting that? Like, oh, is he not a morning person or, oh, was he hungover? And like, which all is just, it's just a different light to look at every piece of 10 years is, it was a lot to kind of process. So I, I was getting myself support with therapy, but it took a while for me to kind of connect with not just do I need support in general, but I need a very specific kind of support for, for the drinking aspect of this situation and um my therapist very early on had been pushing alan on and i and i did attend a few of those meetings virtually because pandemic but for whatever reasons the um the groups that i was finding myself in were predominantly uh children who had parents who were alcoholics and just very different dynamics and it just didn't really click for me so it took a, a while and then some other stuff in life came up that took priority for a little while. And then I, then I sort of was like, okay, I've done all of these things, I've done this. My individual therapist who I trust keeps on saying that I need Al-Anon, but she doesn't mean Al-Anon. She means specific support with folks who understand what it's like to be in this particular situation. So then um, my husband actually suggested Um, echoes of recovery to me, which was very useful for me actually finding something which was more, had more commonality with my experience versus the other meetings I had been to.
0: I think just that alone, that last point you made is very interesting. We have lots of people who point their alcoholic loved one, their husband, mostly to our shout sobriety group. But I, I don't know of another case where we've had someone where the person that had the, the struggles with drinking pointed their loved one to, to echoes, to, you know, any kind of support, even, you know, in our situation, it took me years to acknowledge the fact that Sherry needed help. I thought, well, all she needs is a sober husband. And if I get sober, everything will be fine. And I, th- I think that's a testament to how, um, you know, open-minded your husband is in the fact that everyone involved deserves help and support in their recovery. So that's, that's a pretty interesting piece of this puzzle. Um, I, you know, I, I wanna thank you a ton for coming on and talking about this. I know this is hard. Um, Kate, you, you are very raw um, and that comes across, your emotions come across in this recording. I know that a lot of people that we meet, Sherry, they say, you know they're they're sick of being told how strong they are it's almost like i don't want to have to be strong why i don't want to have to be involved in this i don't have to go through this so by telling me that i'm strong that just reminds me that i'm in this mess to begin with um so at the uh, risk of offending you by saying this kate you are so raw and and so brave and um you know the the growth that you're you're making and the fact that you deserve this growth it just it, it just oozes out of you. Um, we're so thankful that you've trusted, not only Sherry and I and the Echoes of Recovery group, but, but that you've been willing to come on and be vulnerable and honest like this for the benefit of many other, I mean, many other people that I know experience things like this, like the silent treatment and the asking for forgiveness of things that clearly aren't even necessarily your fault just to end the cycle that you're in. Um, it's, it's super difficult. Before we go, I just any anything else that you want to share? Anything that people need to hear?
2: I'm sorry to say I don't have a great closing statement. Just um I uh, I think that when I was speaking with my therapist, I underestimated how much it would help to in fact talk with more people. In that moment, I thought, oh hey, I'm talking to you and I'm talking to my sister now, because I hadn't talked to my sister for like pretty much Uh, had kept silent on a lot of my struggles, because I thought it was my failing that so even with my sister who I'm more safe with my sister than anyone I had kept quiet. So I initially thought, hey, I'm talking to my therapist, I'm talking to my sister, I don't need to talk to anybody else. And I was really wrong. So um, everything I do to just find a way to express this and not make it this thing that I have to keep locked inside has been really helpful. And I see this conversation that we just had as another piece of that. And I thank you for that.
0: What do you mean you don't have a good ending statement? That was was perfect. So thank you for being here with us. Yes. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you guys.
0: Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If
1: you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our echoes of recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org.
1: No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org.
0: For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.